Thank you for listening to the following films podcast. Today I'm joined by director Kia Roach-Turner to talk about his latest film, Wormwood Apocalypse. The film takes place in a zombie-infested Australian wasteland, where a soldier has dedicated his life to tracking and capturing survivors for the Surgeon General in hopes of finding a cure. Wormwood Apocalypse will be available digitally in the U.S. on April 14th. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Chris. Hey, hey going? how are you today? I'm okay. I hope, Thank you. I hope, it's, I hope it's nothing serious. Oh, no, 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 no. It, it was my son. He, um, 11-year-old, he has uh, possibly a sinus infection. We went in, jumped the gun a little bit, just uh, they're going to you know, some, give him some over-the-counter stuff, but no, nothing too serious. So, yeah, uh, considering That's everything good. in the world right now, it definitely could have been a lot worse. So. As long as it's not COVID. Um, exactly. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I got a, I got a, I got a four year old, and he's been sick for a month, like just flus and shit, but just yeah. constant coughing, constant nose running. Can't send him to daycare, so it's like a month without daycare, and it's just like fucking hell. It's like it's full on, man. Like, and kids get sick like every day. Like, it's like, yeah, this COVID thing is just killing your schedule, you know. But <laughs> yeah. it, it's 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 better than having COVID, <laughs> you know, and it's. These are these are first world problems. Hey, at least we're not in the Ukraine right now. So, yeah. Oh, you know. yeah. For no, for sure. I mean, keeping perspective yeah. in that, somehow we've managed to dodge it in my house for the two plus years now. Where two school age children, and I feel so incredibly fortunate. So yeah, yeah, we, we've been lucky to so far. Yeah, exactly. Not not quite <laughs> over yet, but. So I, I'm kind of glad I had a few minutes here at the top of this to jump in and rewatch the opening of this thing because, goddamn, do you know how to start a film? Like you really just jump right into this. There's no uh, um, kind of getting your feet wet, you know, dipping your toes in a little bit. You just jump head first into this thing. I'm not a particularly talented writer, and like I'm no Robert Eggers, so I have to start big. <laughs> I have to start big to just like smack people out of you know the possible disappointment when they realize um oh this is just a comic book movie it's not going to reinvent cinema but yeah you got to start big man you got to start with a bang start with a bang and end with a bang that's what george lucas always said but i mean i don't know this is that kind of film that really does speak to the types of movies that made me fall in love with film in the first place um where it was george romero was my first director the first guy that i followed you know day of the dead and you have there's things you touch on here and here that I really haven't seen in any other apocalypse film like this that, you know, since Day of the Dead, possibly, where you really do touch on the boredom of it at times. I think um, where you kind of show the monotony and the while the danger is heightened and everything, the violence is there. You can see the characters are kind of just this is their day to day routine sometimes. Yeah. And that's what I like. I mean, I think a lot of sort of actiony kind of horror films forget to kind of do that. You know, that's why one of the things I love is um, I love that we sort of open this film with a guy's daily routine. And this is his equivalent of getting up, making coffee, buttering the toast, getting the kids ready. But it's just he's doing it in a zombie apocalypse wasteland where, you know, um, his barbecue and his generator is powered by these methane breathing zombies. You know, it's just a normal routine in a very abnormal world, you know, and I, I love that kind of cross between something very interesting and very mundane. I think there's there's a real cinematic beauty in moments like that, you know. And did you write this with that uh, Nick Cave needle drop in mind? Because it really does work really well for that scene. No, we actually wrote it for um, 
a different track, which ended up costing too much. And I'm really glad it did because I was never, I always thought it was a bit of a cliche track. And, and we, we tried so many different things and, and Nick Cave was just the one that fit in there. And it's funny because everybody said, you can't do that. It's the Peaky Blinders soundtrack. And my answer to that was fuck no, off. No, no, this no, is no, an Australian not. song. Thank you. It's Australian. It's not fucking Brummy. <laughs> it's not from the UK. And it's not from the Scream soundtrack. That's an American franchise. This is our music. And like, I want to put it in an Australian movie to try and, you know, to try and steal it back, you know, and, and, um, and it works very well, you know. I, I think the lyrics and just the tone of it—it it, it was the only one that really worked. Well, um, it's it's so, kind of yeah. like you're you're doing your Bono thing and you're stealing Helter Skelter back from uh, Charles Manson with this, I guess, in a way. In a way, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and it is—it's a cracking song, though. It has been overused a bit, but it's just—it's never really been used in a context where it's distinctly darkly australian which is what it is it's a dark australian ballad folk ballad you know and, and i think i think it's contextually correct and so we just i just had to go with it because it just felt so right well it, it's one of those songs that does predate that somebody that grew up loving the cave in the bad seeds i don't think of that as peaky blinders right out of the gate so yeah. it, it can be owned by other things and yeah. and i think context you can make things that are been used a thousand times you can make them your own you know if you do if, something if, different if, with it if it's good it's yeah. fine you know what yeah. i mean it's just like if you use it and and it's a bad context and it's badly placed then it's unacceptable and it's just um you know but it, it, i think if it's true and it sits correctly it's right and i think it it starts the movie in such a badass culturally kind of relevant way that you know, we, we we as soon as that you know, boom, and you're into you know, um, red right hand. As soon as that hits, the audience goes, "Ooh, this is going to be good." Um, yeah. And I w- I wish we had two or three more needle drops like that. I had a few planned ones, and at the end of the day, like they're so expensive that it's just for an indie film, you can't do it. Like I'm pretty sure that like people like Wes Anderson and Scorsese and that they just have a two or three million dollar musical budget like right oh there, God. just sitting there. And I'm like, I'm looking at this, just going, "Oh man, like." just one track is like almost my entire music budget. You know what I mean? It's just like, well, it's, it's ridiculous. Well, licensing rights have killed, uh, especially indie filmmakers, but even somebody like uh, Stephen King. I, I was a big Stephen King guy growing up and he used to always yeah. start with song lyrics in his books. And apparently it got too expensive. He would just use like, you know, Rolling Stones lyrics. Uh, he would have that. I little remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah he he said, t- he'd have a little quote, you know. Mm-hmm. Like and it would be like um, two or three hundred bucks. It would be whatever he was listening to at the time. He would kind of drop something in there. I and didn't he even like, know he had to pay for that, even when it's just, uh, just I, mean, I suppose it makes sense. It's a writing um, yep. credit, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. well, th- that, that was what he was saying, that it was, you know, went from two or three hundred bucks to literally tens of thousands of dollars just to have a quote. The <laughs> but it's, it's such a pity because it means there's this whole chunk of popular culture that can only be expressed if you have a huge budget or if you're a Marvel film. So you've got all these big Marvel films that are using these huge, set, like, songs incorrectly because yes. they're just putting it in there to pad out their otherwise average writing and i'm not saying it's all average but you, like that's the difference between a good placement and a shitty placement is like a shitty placement of a beautiful popular culture song is just there because the movie's not good enough and the producers yes. are like maybe a queen song will help you know and that's <laughs> no way that's no reason to put a queen song into a movie you know you should have a plan for it you should you know you should you should do it with a scalpel like Wes Anderson does you know oh yeah um, and, cool. and 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 indie filmmakers are using scalpels because 
you know, they're not writing according to studios, they're writing according to passion, but they can't use fucking, you know, these amazing songs because they can't afford it. It's so frustrating because I grew up watching Scorsese films where, like, you know, you look at Mean Streets, that oh my God. is just, it's a barrel full of brilliant needle drops and yeah. I can't do it. I, I get one needle drop a film if I'm lucky, you know, and, and that's just not enough. I want more. Well, and I, I, I don't disagree with you, but with that being said, the way that you use score and the way that you sound in this film, I think really does show that you have that music is important to you. It does feel like this is a thoughtful element of your film because it's the, and I think you guys have gotten incredibly, uh, there's been huge growth between the two Wormwood films. And I, I look at this and how much more polished this looks and feels just from top to bottom. And I think sound is a big part of that as well. Huge sound, yeah. I'm a massive. I, I do. I do my own temp sound design. So, mm. like, I, I hand a very specific sound designed temp piece of audio over to the sound designers, and then they make it gold. You know, I, they start with crappy brass from me, <laughs> but it's very specific, and then they make it genius. But I love good sound design. I'm a big fan of you know the Cohen Brothers and you know real sound designy filmmakers like that. You know, but yeah, it's funny. I, I wanted to use Daryl Braithwaite's horses, like when he was. Um, yeah. when we're in the surgical lab you know yeah, that's yeah, yeah. the way it's gotta be little darling <laughs> like i wanted him to be listening to all these crappy like 80s kind of um <laughs> you know bad romance kind of music you know um, yeah pop, like the like 70s really bad, am kind of yeah. like vibe with that just juxtaposition that's just that's beautiful <laughs> so i had one needle drop and it was like i'm putting it at the start of the film it's gonna be nick cave so yeah fantastic but then so you guys have been working on this project in different iterations pretty much from the beginning what what's kept in at least i keep hearing things or seeing things that you're yeah. been trying to grow this out this whole time what is it about this particular world that makes you want to keep going back to it and continue to tell stories here we just lucked into a cool concept like the idea of melding mad max and dawn of the dead is just cool like yeah. you just say that sentence and anybody who loves those films is just like what i'll watch that <laughs> like where's that um because it, it seems like it's just one of those two things that goes together really well like you know rum and coke or um you know it's uh it's just a it, it's a lovely combination to write to too because those two worlds are so fertile and so fresh and just with the idea of the 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 zombies emitting a methane substance that you can power your vehicles on it's just instant it's endlessly riffable and you know the idea that these hybrid you know sort of scientific creations of the military um these half human half zombie people develop powers to control zombies like puppets it's just got so many things like i i, I mean I, we tried to do a tv series because i could just like right. I, I just there's so many ideas like it's one of those things where like it's a pleasure to write because it's not a question of what do we do now it's a question of okay which of the hundred things that we want to do do we are we going to put in this scene you know and um yeah i mean it's just like i said there's just en endless permutations in this world it, it feels like our little gritty dirty zombie star wars <laughs> you know so I'd, I'd be happy to do this for forever yeah well, I, I i hope you do continue to go back to it because i do love this world that you've created with this and part of it is just how completely 100 australian this film is from top to bottom that it does feel so much of that culture and it's so specific that it becomes something that's really relatable in a lot of ways, if that makes any sense. It's something that just I can project myself into it because there you don't seem to have any interest about telling a story to me. And in that, that that way it feels really the and the point to entry is very low, if that makes any sense. 
Yeah, and, you know, like there would be no point in me doing that because there's so many great directors over in, in the US who are making, you know, their own versions of that. Um, the only way to do it is to make it very personal and make it very culturally specific. Um, and weirdly, I think Wormwood tends to do better overseas than it does in Australia. Australia has a very small but dedicated horror um, uh, sort of fan group, but we tend not to go to horror films. Um, and so, yeah, Wormwood... Um, has a very small but dedicated following here, but we really do more business over in the US and in Italy and in the UK and stuff where horror is like seen as more mainstream. Whereas in Australia, it's like, it's, it's not, yeah, it, um, it's, it's not as big over here. Um, so that's, that's why I'm excited about releasing in the US because we, we tend not to get rolling until we release in the US, you know, because, and then the weird thing is we release in the US and then suddenly Australians are reading about it going, what's, Wait, is, is there a new Wormwood out? And I'm like, yeah, open your eyes, guys. Like, what are you doing? Like, we have to be told by you guys to watch our films. Like, it's so funny. But I think it's more about, you know, like there's just not, there's not a lot of marketing budget. So we, we tend to wait until, you know, the rest of the world kind of puts the word out. And then Australians will go, oh, did we make a film called The Babadook? What's The Babadook? Like, why, why is everybody in France going crazy about this, you know? And then suddenly it comes back around and everybody's watching it in Australia on Netflix. So it's, it's not really released until it's released in the US. That's so, so yeah. funny. So mm -hmm. then, okay, so then is somebody like, uh, is it that exclusive to horror, would you say? Or does somebody like like Ivan Sen, does his, do his films like connect with audiences right away or do they have to kind of, find their way something like goldstone is that kind of coming out of the gate like people paying attention to it or is it something that, that it takes a while to to catch on there goldstone is more like the the particularly when you're talking about theatrical buying tickets audiences that's like my parents or people in their 50s and 60s actually have disposable income and time to go to the theater they'll go see an Ivan Sen film because it's traumatic and it it seems like it's culturally like on point but even if an Australian generally hears about Wormwood they'll go yeah great when's it out on Netflix you know they're not, they're not going to go and put the kids in you know uh, uh, you know get a babysitter and pay for parking to go and see a horror film but like um, Americans will and people in the UK will because uh, there's more diehard fans, you know, maybe bigger pocket population. Like Australia's only, you know, 25 million or whatever. Right. Um, small population. So they tend to just go, okay, well, we'll get that on Netflix, you know? Well, it's in the horror. That's a shame because that's one of those genres where I think it's best serviced in a theater, seeing it with a crowd and having that reaction to it. And your film, it's, these films are they're horror but it doesn't feel like the scares or the jumps are necessarily the point always uh, because you hit the gore so hard so early on that it's you can't help but get a little bit desensitized to it where when you're ramping up um towards the end that it comes yeah. down again and it's almost like you have to have these peaks and valleys throughout and then by the time the ending hits on this one um it really does hit hard but it's um you kind of have to worry about emptying people's tanks along the way yeah, I don't consider Wormwood to be horror. Like, I, right. I don't even look at Dawn of the Dead and go, well, that's a horror film because it's it's fun. It's more fun than scary. There mm. are a couple of jump scares and the premise is disturbing because you're fighting shuffling corpses, which is not, you know, what else is that but horror? But, yeah, it's more like an adventure with scares, you know? Um, and, you know, the theatrical thing is even more so with a film like this because this is... Mad Max meets horror. So you've got all these huge, you know, um, 
3D soundscapes that we've created for these huge Dolby speakers that, you know, like all the screaming engines and, you know, they use like five or six different elements like humans, pigs, um, like eagles and crying babies to create like these soundscapes of the shrieking oh, wow. zombies. Um, and it's like that stuff just doesn't come through on a crappy little TV speaker. So it's one of those things you, you really want to see this on the big screen. But, I mean, who am I kidding? Like who, who has time for that? Like I'll, I'll go and see June and probably a Tarantino film and that's it for the year. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, if, if, if most films, you know, you just watch on Netflix when they come out and, it's, it's fine. I mean, people have big tellies these days and usually a decent home sound system. So I don't, I don't even care if people watch this on a phone, Chris, <laughs> to be honest. I shouldn't say that, but I don't give a shit, man. As long as they're watching it, I don't care. Well, I mean, okay, I know that there, it's anti-cinephile for me to think this way, but really I, I kind of feel the same way because most of the films that I love, I discovered them on VHS. I watched them in pan and scan on a four by three television with yeah. that is, and that's how I fell in love with Scorsese. That's how I fell yeah. in love with Mad Max. All the things that you're talking about. The first time I saw them, it wasn't theatrically presented. And half the times when it was theatrically presented, it wasn't a great situation anyway, because it was something where it was an old print that had been, it was at a revival house and yeah. you know, maybe it was good. Maybe it wasn't. Yeah. So no, I am. Um, we're, okay. we're sort of of the same um, age, maybe. Um, yeah. I grew up, going to video stores not not even dvd stores you know and like the way i saw a clockwork orange i had to like i heard whisperings of like there may be an under-the-counter thing that you can get down at video manor which is like you know and you have to go almost say a password johnny sent me do you have a copy of like clockwork orange and legally they can't say they do so you rent a couple of things and they slide you i watched it in black and white it's like a black and white copy of a copy really of a copy. i had to watch a kubrick film that had been banned in my country on vhs in black and white so um, was that a part of the video nasties thing there also or was this just a whole separate thing Clockwork Orange was banned in the UK and therefore banned in Australia because we okay. were sort of similar. We had right. a similar kind of law there, so I had to yeah I had to get an under the counter copy of a Clockwork Orange just to watch a Kubrick film because it was banned. And like half the time, you know, you'd go and you know they might have Evil Dead two, they don't have Evil the Evil Dead one. Like you would have to drive. 50 minutes to see early Cronenberg. You go, do you have scanners? Do you have, you know, like it's really hard to find. And so like now, nowadays you just go to YouTube and watch it. You know, nowadays it's click of a button, but we actually had to get in the car and spend petrol and drive over to Bondi, like, and just like, yeah, go to like some video store we've never been to, join up just to watch early Cronenberg. Yeah. And so it was a pilgrimage. Like there was something sacred about that because you had to spend time, energy, and like a whole Saturday just getting a couple of these videos, you know. And um, that's and I think our generation has this religious feeling for cinema that yeah. this generation doesn't have because this generation are like these young gods and they're just like, bring it to me, bring it to me. And like you, you give them a film and like the first thing they say is, great. When's the next one? And you're like, fuck, I just finished it. Like, how about did you like it? You know, do you know what I mean? They're just like, more. Where's the TV series? You know, and, and it's just like, dude, it's like, I, 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 when I was a kid, I had to watch Back to the Future come out in America. I had to wait six months, six months before it came to a cinema in my country, you know? And like, you know, that makes you 
respect it. You know, there's like a respect for for for, for the for, for cinema because you know it wasn't just something that you had complete control over. You had to wait for it. You know. Well, and I, I for us, and it can sound ridiculous, but there was a commitment to things that you might have turned off if it was just a thumbnail. Because you, you, like you said, you went down to the video store, you got somebody to drive you to a video store. Um, yeah. You walk in, you spent, and these things, I don't know how they were there, but they weren't cheap to rent. And so yeah. you rented two or three of these things and you were committed. That was it. Those were your options for that night, that yeah. weekend, whatever it oh, was. You spent your pocket money. It's yeah. like, that's your money. Like you don't, you don't have any pocket money left. You're going to fucking watch it, you know, like. And if you get halfway through The Guardian by William Friedkin and you think, well, this is a bit bollocks, it's like, oh, no, we're watching no, this. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> it's all we've got. <laughs> you know, we're watching it. And I actually quite like that film. I shouldn't have used that as a reference. No, no. Well, I mean, but I see where you're coming from, though, because that's not something like his all of his films, like something like Sorcerer. That's not exactly jumping right out of the gate. But, you know, his films, you're rewarded by being patient with them, I think. Um, yeah, Jade. If you rented Jade, you were watching it, and that's a piece of shit. <laughs> that is a piece of shit. But it's like I can tell you what happens in the end because, man, I spent $7 renting that thing, you know? But then, but the, the only counter to that would be that it's not like, it's not unlike skateboarding or any athleticism or any skill that you have where you're just building on everything before, and now these kids have access to the entire world. Yeah. And they don't have to, we have, we're more, precious about it but they can really learn a director's work and uh, i don't think that they'll absorb it all but they can really dial into it and re-watch and yeah. go back over and over again and find things that you know influences much quicker than we could there was no imdb when we were kids you can't see those things as clearly i think but i mean that's part of the reason why i have to pour so much energy into every frame like i have to start with a bang because I'm up against, you know, like if if my film isn't even vaguely liked by young people, it doesn't make enough money for me to justify a worm with three. Right. So not only do I have to make a good film, but I have to get through the storm of noise. You know, I have to get through Morbius and, you know, um, Thor 3 and like all that stuff, you know, because kids are so spoiled for content and they're so spoiled for these really big um, uh, budgeted things. Like if you've got even a... If you've got too many bad visual effects, they'll just turn it off. They're just like, oh, this is cheap shit, you know. So it's it's quite difficult when you're on a small budget, but, you know, you're, you're trying to capture the attention, especially with an action film, because there's so many good action films out there. And um, why would they watch Wormwood when they can just, got, you know, watch Fury Road? Like you, you really have to start with something not only good, not only big enough um, but it has to be so conceptually interesting that they won't just turn it off and go, I've seen, we've seen this before, you know? And I think that's probably the most important thing is, you know, it has to be something that they haven't seen before, like Squid Game, you know? Um, it has to be something that feels fresh, even though there's nothing new under the sun and Wormwood is just, you know, basically a series of films that have already been made. It's, it's that particular mix, though, of ingredients that you're throwing together that makes it your special thing. I mean, you could mm -hmm. say the same thing about, you know, Mexican food. I live 60 miles from the Mexican border that there's essentially just, you know, five or six ingredients and that's all it is. But, yeah. you, you know, it's the way that you combine those ingredients and the way that you prepare those things. And the, that's what makes it unique and what makes it special. And I think that, yes, it, on a surface level, this is Mad Max meets Dawn of the Dead. But, you know, I could absolutely see a kid that saw Fury Road and said, I want more of that. 
And then somebody tries to have them in a Marvel direction. That's not going to work for them. That's not going to yeah. be something, you know, if you're looking at kind of kinetic, uh, you know, just kind of crazy energy that, you know, that film has that it just falls out from the beginning to end. I think your film checks out a lot more than most mainstream films do. Well, that's basically why we wanted to make Wormwood because George was taking too long with the, the fourth <laughs> Mad Max. And so we just went, oh, look, let's just get our mates to put on leather armor. We'll build a Mad Max vehicle and we'll shoot one ourselves, you know. And we actually took so long to finish it that he finished Fury Road and released it before we released the first Wormwood. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's the impetus, you know, when, when there's not enough of something that you love out there and you have the ability to make it yourself, you just go out and do it yourself. And you're right, it's like the blues, you know. So even though it is Mad Max and Dawn of the Dead, um, even though it is a very familiar riff, it's how you play it and the soul that you put into it. And, you know, with the blues, if you're not putting your own experience and, and feelings and emotions and passion into it, then you may as well just be, you know, writing out math equations, you know, it means nothing. That's so, what yeah, it sounds they, like when I play guitar. Yeah. It sounds like math equations. You can't hear my heart in it. It's 100% what happens when I try to play. But, uh, you know, but, you know, the, the guys in The Clash or the guys in... Um, you know, Sex Pistols couldn't really play, but they had a lot of heart, you know, and that's what punk music's all about. It's not right. about the technical aspect. It's about is there passion and the heart behind it. So, you know, even if you're not a great player, if you if you have it, you know, in here, it, you know, the audience feels it. Well, and that's what I, the what I would say about your film is the overall kind of the feeling that I get for it is there's not an ounce of cynicism in this movie. It doesn't feel like something that was trying to check boxes to make a thing. It just feels like everybody that's involved in this film from, you know, top to the bot very bottom of this movie, everybody is committed to this thing. There's not a weak link yeah. that I feel here. Yeah, and that's true. And I think whether you like it or not, that is true. Like there's a cinematic truth to it. And I've made both films now, you know, I've had the... Um, uh, like I, I was able to make a big sort of ten million. You know, ten million dollars is a big amount in Australia yeah. to make a film. But but because of the big budget and because of the studio nature of it, I was put into a position where many 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 people made the decisions, and there was a forced aspect to elements because we need to please the audience more than we need to make a good film. Um, and it, it, there's always a balance, like there's a balance of, hey, you know, this is a financially driven industry, but it's also art driven. So if you can't find that perfect balance, um, you know, you're in trouble. And, that, and that's why, you know, the, it's so interesting to see filmmakers out there like, you know, Christopher Nolan or, you know, even Spielberg or Scorsese or, mm -hmm. you know, Robert Eggers or Ari Aster, like these are these are uh, uh, Denis Villeneuve, like th these are people yeah. who've been able to balance the financial aspect and the artistic aspect and still and, and make things that are, um, you know, artistically true with like an original vision, but also that make money, you know, and that's that's really the hardest part of, 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 um, of the industry is to, to bring those two things together, um, you know, make something that can be sold like popcorn but also has a, a creative integrity. It's like, how the fuck do you do that? I'm still trying to work that out. And it seems like the answer for us is like, make it for very little money, small budget, and they leave you alone, you know? But um, well, I, yeah. I assume the budget on this is small, but it does not look like a cheap film. This is, I'm assuming, you, I just, I feel like you guys are definitely punching above your weight class with the way this film looks, the way it feels. 
the special effects in here, like you touched on it before, there's nothing in here that looks like shit in this movie. It's nothing that feels cheap about this thing. It's, it's great to hear. And I think that is more about the amazing crews that we have over here, like just really, really super creative people and very, very professional, good at what they do. A lot of people took embarrassingly small salaries mm. on this. There was a lot of what we call reinvestment, where people kind of just go, look, we'll take the lowest salary and we're going to reinvest our time into the film. We'll give you wow. this shit for free. We want to work on this. Um, because it's fun because half the time I'm shooting Hyundai commercials and I want to shoot myself in the face if I have to do another reality TV show. So, you know, they squeeze us in and they give us, you know, just like top quality pro um, craftsmanship for very little money um, and they can only really afford to do that like once a year um, and, and, and they gave it to us on this and, and, you know, you just hope that you can justify their investment, you know. And is this something that, now that you've seen both of those sides, that do you prefer working where you have more autonomy or do you like being able to play with the bigger toys? I mean, everybody wants both, but I, I realise that the bigger toys aren't worth it um, hmm. if you can't. You have to be working with people who want to back up your vision. Otherwise, you might as well just do commercials. Like, you know, if you're not in charge of the film, what's the point? Like, it. I, I've tried it and I don't know how to make it work where I just go, let's all get together and just do it. How about we all just write and direct it, like all seven of us, you know, and it's yeah. like that's, you know, everybody knows that that is how camels are made. If you want to make a horse, you know, something sleek and beautifully designed, you have to have faith in a single vision, you know. Like David Lynch doesn't go, I don't know, guys, what do, what do you all think? Like he's got a very specific vision. So does Spielberg, so does Scorsese, yeah. so do all the greats. Um, and so, you know, if you want to make great content, you have to find a way to have enough autonomy so that you have a singular vision. And I, I've, I've realised that, you know, I'm at the point, unfortunately, where my films haven't made enough money where I can justify a big budget and autonomy. So I have to have a small budget and autonomy. Um, but that's okay. I like low budgets. I, I got no problem with that. You know, like I've always, I've always done better with a low budget anyway, so I don't give a shit, you know, but... You know, that's that's where it is, you know. It's, um, this is only my third film, so I'm still learning the process. Um, like, I'm a pretty good filmmaker, but I'm not, like, that's that's literally less than half of what filmmaking is. The other half is dealing with the money people, the money right. side of things, the financial business aspect. You have to have a plan for that. And if you don't, and the only way to do that is by doing it. You have to learn how to deal with these corporations you know and the, the fear of the corporations because money is about fear um it's all about fear you know and the more money the more fear um and so you, you have conversations where they're going how can you guarantee this film's going to make money and then you have to find a way to lie because nobody can guarantee that a film is going to make money ever the thing yeah. flopped and got bad critical response yeah like the thing john carpenter's the thing oh yeah this is yeah. th this should be hung on a wall next to the mona lisa as one of the greatest horror films of all time entertaining scary like everything about it is perfect and yet it made no money and got a bad critical response so how can you there's no guarantees like there's well, just no guarantees so look at, look at the oscars yeah. this year the all the movies that were up for the most part were not financially successful um you know something like west side story was uh, you have spielberg you have an existing title that people mm. there's you would assume that's as close to a guarantee as you could get i mean yeah. we're... today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by bookman's 
So I went into Bookman's today and decided to try to find one of Courtney Gaines' films. I already had the Arrow release of Children of the Corn, uh, but I had a couple other titles in mind that I'd like to revisit. So I walked in, went over to the Blu-ray section, and within about one minute, I spotted a copy of The Burbs. The Burbs is a 1989 uh, dark comedy directed by Joe Dante. It stars Tom Hanks, Bruce Dern, Carrie Fisher, Corey Feldman, Henry Gibson, and, of course, Courtney Gaines. The film is centered around Tom Hanks, who plays a suburban uh, father who decides to stay home for a peaceful summer vacation, but his plans are shattered when a weird family moves in next door. Screenwriter Dana Olson based the script on his own experiences from childhood. He said, I had an ultra-normal middle-class upbringing, but our town had its own share of psychos. There was a legendary hatchet murder in the 30s, and every once in a while you'd pick up the local paper and read something like, Librarian Kills Family, Self. As a kid, it was fascinating to think that Mr. Flanagan down the street could turn out to be Jack the Ripper. And where there's fear, there's comedy. So I approached the Burbs as Ozzy and Harriet meets Charles Manson. In recent years, there's been a call to return to the Ozzy and Harriet Leave It to Beaver-esque suburbs of the 1950s. A perfect example of how motivated cognition can skew our thoughts on history and our current reality. This world is and was a fantasy. It never existed. The Burbs beautifully examines the boredom-inspired paranoia and barely-veiled prejudice that often stirs about in most suburban neighborhoods. I was genuinely shocked at how well this movie holds up. A film like American Beauty that's dealing with similar thematic issues and took home the Best Picture uh, Oscar, it feels dated and slightly naive in its view of what it means to age. Dante isn't raising a middle finger to his generation and calling them sellouts. He's laughing at what they've become. And as a part of the generation that ushered in Nirvana, flannel is fashion and like, reality bites. I mean, it wasn't all perfect. I get it. We didn't think we'd be taking over the suburbs, but here we are. I'm perfectly comfortable in my suburban lifestyle, but I'm fully aware that the 20-year-old version of me uh, thinks I'm a poser. And in some ways, I guess I am. But the one thing that's been consistent in my life is, yes, I'm posing. I'm pretending. I'm faking it, hoping no one will notice that I'm uncomfortable in my own skin. But as I get older, I get closer to caring less every day. And I think that's what Dante was getting at. The frustrations that we often allow to take over our lives are a product of our own boredom and our lack of strife. We're at, we are animals who use fear as a tool to protect ourselves and we'll find something to be afraid of just to have something to do. But then again, every once in a while, you will read a story, um, like Dana was talking about, about that neighbor in the idyllic zip code who went nuts and did something that people will talk about for decades. So, are the suburbs perfect? No. Are cities? No. As long as you have large groups of people housed near one another, eventually things will go south. But for the most part, you have nothing to fear in your neighbor or your neighbor's neighbor. If you haven't seen The Burbs, you should definitely remedy that. It's a great film, real easy to watch. If you haven't been to Bookman's lately, you should remedy that as well. Because remember, Bookman's has your cool covered. Enjoy the rest of the show. Coming on the tail end of the pandemic here when it was released, but I mean, you know, the week after that, a Spider-Man movie comes out and breaks all kinds of records. So it's just, there's no guarantees in what will connect with audiences. Yeah, and, and the one thing I know is that, like, critics and audiences can smell a fake. So if you're designing a film just for audiences, 
they'll sniff that out in two seconds and they'll forgive it if it's $100 million and you blow up New York three times, but they won't forgive it if you've got a small budget um, because they can smell unoriginal material and it's, you know, it's it's disgusting to them. Especially critics. There, there, there's critics nothing to under. Exactly. Critics, like your good self, you've seen everything. Like, you know that. You're like, oh, I can see what you're doing. Like, you know, you caved and, you know, you, you've made a studio moment, which is nobody wants that. Um, isn't and that so opinion you, wrong, though? Like, because we watch too much shit, I, I, our opinions are almost less valid because we're not an average audience goer. And so if you make films for critics, I don't know that that's necessarily right either. Okay. To have a career, you have to have either, you have to have one of two things or both things. Money, it has to make money and it has to be well-reviewed. So it's allowed to make money and be badly reviewed um, because then you can say, well, the people liked it, but the critics, you know, what do you do? It's allowed to be well-reviewed but make no money because then at least you can take your... Well, you can take your projects to big actors and go, look, it didn't make any money, but look how great it is. It's good, you know, like because people want to be a part of something mm. great, whether it makes money or not. The, like the sweet spot is it makes money and is well-reviewed and then everybody loves you. But um, like what was the question? Um, are well, people less valid because they've seen more well, content? See, the thing is like I feel like audiences generally, they'll respond to something in a more honest way. Where I feel like critics read too many other critics and their opinions are like they exist in almost this echo chamber to some degree. And especially with online film criticism, where people are just racing to get to the first one there. And then while people are putting together their own thoughts on something, a lot of times it feels like they're reading other people. Because if you look at early reviews, you'll start to pick up very similar themes a lot of times. You know, film festivals are notorious for it, where you'll start to see, okay, this is the one where pretty much everybody had the same take on this film I, I and it just doesn't feel authentic sometimes to me um where i just wish film critics didn't read other film critics. maybe i i don't know i, I I've, I've only made three films um i've made one film that was well reviewed and i've made one film that i knew was badly written i know because i fucking hmm. wrote it <laughs> like even as i was writing it i'm like I don't like any of this shit. Like I had to do the notes. They gave notes. Wow. I couldn't get it financed unless we did a certain thing. So I, I was just like, I'm going to hope that I'm a good enough writer to write shit and still have it spin into gold. I'm not. Yeah. Like I'm not sure anybody is, you know. So um, and and it, it's really funny because the original Wormwood was well, well reviewed, but a lot of reviewers looked at it and said, and a lot of review, reviews started like this. I don't like horror and I'm sick of zombies, but this is pretty good. You know, um, and so well, if you, you kind of needed to throw that out there at the time because it was at yeah. that there was a saturation point. So I get that. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, uh, the 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 critics I, I found on my, my my second film, which I which I do think you know had problems. They jumped on it in a pretty smart way, hmm. and it was so hurtful to see all of the things that I thought printed well. I was like, you you really I agree with everything you said. You know, so. <laughs> I, I think there's too many critics, there's too many blog, you know, all that stuff. But, like, you don't get to have the internet and then not have that at the same time. Of course. So we live in a time where you can make a piece of content and, you know, you can be famous for 15 minutes in 15 minutes, you know. Yeah. You can have people in Poland watching your film, like, within seven minutes of upload. Um, and that's an amazing thing. But, you know, the cost is that we have a storm of noise and we have a storm of critics. And that's just the way it is. But still, there's 
there's still the big ones. You know, you if you get a bad review from Hollywood Reporter, Variety, and the New York Times, you know it's a stinker. You right. know, whereas you can sort of see, you know, everybody in Nomadland comes out and everybody kind of agrees it's good. You know, um, June comes out and, you know, love it or leave it, it's well made. It's yeah. a very well made film. You know, Fury Road comes out and hey, you can say it's just one long chase scene, but like it's, you can't argue that it isn't like phenomenal filmmaking, you know, and the proof Absolutely. is in the pudding. And I think, you know, people are just quicker to, poke holes in in something that's like you know just below average you know like you can't get away with it anymore it's got to be it's got to be pretty damn good because it's up it's up against so many millions of of other pieces of content that you know it really does have to be good to be to be called good you know so yeah i i i agree with that part of it completely it's just we kind of need to sit with things sometimes to fully understand them before we give our opinions on it necessarily I think that the gut reaction can often be wrong. Um, it's just important to take time to kind of sit with something, but you're not afforded that opportunity in criticism. One of my favorite reviews when the original Wormwood came out was um, was like a headline that said, um, what was it? The, the, the whole premise of the argument was that they'd just come out of Wormwood and they heard a bunch of nerds going, oh, it's not that great. No, 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 no. And like they're going, Wormwood's really good. It doesn't have to be great. Like we're all so spoiled. Is going like, like you have to applaud a good movie. You know yeah. what I mean? Don't yeah. come out being a dick. Like you know, sure it's not like Citizen Kane, but it's a fucking zombie film. You know, so you know, and that's that's what's lost is people are so quick to put a film up against the greatest there ever is. It's like no, I'm a lightweight. Don't put me in a fucking ring with like Muhammad Ali. Of course I'm going to get my head punched in. I'm not Denis Villeneuve, you know. It's just a tiny little low-budget Australian film with some zombies in it. And judge it as it should be, you know, for what it is, you know. And I think I think that's something that, you know, there should be more of. I, and I, I don't think you're wrong in that. I think context is really important. Good critics provide context for those kinds of things. They are mm. you know, kind of throwing that out there. But your, your film is one of the, these films or films that I think can transcend that, that people beyond the genre gore fans, I think would really enjoy this, this movie. It's just fun. If you're looking for something fun and original, I think that you could do a lot worse than this. And I, I look forward to these movies. And I, I really, I, I, yeah, I'm the typical internet greedy bastard that you're talking about that wants more of them. So. <laughs> we, we all are, Chris. Like, I'm, I just got to the end of Ozarks and I'm like, give me the second season. <laughs> I'm whinging, my brother's whinging to me. He's going, I'm watching Severance and I resent that I have to wait for it now. You know, he's going to wait a week for the next, you know, Severance episode. We're all so spoiled, you know. Um, but, you know, it's just funny when you're on the other side of it and, you, you know, you're behind the camera and just going, oh, I just finished it. Like, and you want, all you're asking is like, when's Wormwood 3? It's like, what did you think of the second one though? It took us loved three it. years to make. Loved it. It's great. <laughs> Enjoy it. That's why, take it as a compliment. If we're asking for more, that's the best 100%. compliment you can get. Really, 100%, cause, yeah. Because if we're, we are in a time right now where there is so much content, as you've mentioned, that if somebody's wanting more of your thing, that means that out of everything in the world that they could be watching, they want more of you, which is, that's a pretty high, that's good praise. That is the greatest and highest of praise, you know, I think. Um, so that's, that's a good, that's a yeah, good point. Yeah. You're going to have gratitude for that. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, when can people see Wormwood here in the States? I believe it's coming out. And is it next week, week after when are we? I guess next week. 
yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's next week, like the 14th, I think. Yeah, okay. Um, and I guess it's just going out on VOD and all the usual platforms so people can people can see it however they want to see it. Um, and, yeah, I mean, he's hoping that people are into the idea of another sort of Fury Road meets Dawn of the Dead, you know? I, I think they are, you know? I think, I, to me, there's not a lot else out there like this right now. I'm, I watch a lot of shit, and your films feel utterly original when I'm watching these two back to That's back. That's cool. So. That's what I'm hoping for. And, you know, like you're, um, you know, you see, I think people are really interested in, you know, the, the gritty alternative. Like you look at the success of Squid Game, it's like people want something a little bit different. And the thing they love about Squid Game is it's genuine. Like it's real. Like that's a filmmaker really making a big, you know, proper yeah. look at a concept. That concept is as old as the hills. I remember film school students talking about that 20 years ago. Let's do that concept, you know. And he did it, but he really committed. And there's no studio polish on it. It's all just real shit. Oh, yeah. It's how it would go down. It's properly violent. It's got beautiful emotional arcs, you know, the performances and the cinematography. And, you know, everything is great about that series, you know. But it's a real swing from somewhere alternative to to um, the polish of, um, of of big Hollywood. Um, and, with, and even if it's coming from little Hollywood, like people love indie shit. Like yeah. that's what they love about you know films like The Witch or Hereditary. Like it feels like it's coming from a real independent, almost '90s independent place. You know where risks are being taken on the screen, and it's so rare to see that now because, like I was saying before, so much of this industry is driven by fear fear of not making money and therefore watering everything down to make it go for a wider market it's like stop aiming for the wider market why don't you just aim to make something good you know that, that seems like the logical thing to swing at to me but i mean it's so hard to get a foot in the door that i guess people want to be invited back i, I don't know but well the the thing is it's easy for me to say that because i'm not giving up 10 million dollars you know what i mean it's so true. it's like, yeah, just aim for something good. It's like, dude, if if it's not good, we all lose our jobs. So I get it, you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's you, you got to risk something. Um, otherwise, you don't. You, you can't make something good without risk. And um, you know, that's that's where this industry is. Those are those two elements that that brush up against each other um, so much. Is you know, risk versus financial fear of losing our jobs. You know. Yeah, I mean that I'm who who can't relate to that in some element whatsoever. Um, whether it's you know speaking up in a meeting and you know if you have like kind of a typical day job or that I get that protecting you know your kids need to go to school and you need to you know make sure they have lunch and all those things I get that completely. But I did want to mention one thing: Squid Game is one of the. I was really proud of my country for a moment, and as, as a self-hating American, I don't have many moments like that. When I, I go on Netflix and I see what the number one show that's trending is, and I, I look at it, and I go, oh my God, there's a Korean show that's, that's yeah. amazing. And I watch it, and it turns out, and people in this country are horrible about watching things that are dubbed. Um, they won't read movies. They, they just won't. And apparently Netflix is smart enough that it'll default. And apparent, several people that I talked to didn't know that Squid Game was not in English that it was just automatically defaulting to the dubbed version of it. And so for me, because it knows my taste, it defaulted to being subtitled in, in Korean. It just is smart oh. enough to do that. And I was so proud of my country for a moment. But look, we accepted a foreign language series yeah. and got that into yeah. it. No, we were just watching a dubbed show. 
So I, I was almost there. And it just turns out it was an overwhelming majority of people in this country watched it dubbed, which is just one of those frustrating things. Yeah, I don't understand the dub thing. Is it an issue with um, like just reading quickly? Like I, because I grew up watching subtitled films. It's a pleasure because you, you get an insight into another culture. And if you watch it dubbed, it ruins it. Like it, it's. Um, you don't hear the performance anymore. I mean, it just looks like a bad 1970s Sergio Leone, you know, movie, or like it looks like a martial arts film, you know, when the mouth doesn't line up with the. Yep. Um, and it becomes a comedy then immediately, just a comedy. So. It, yeah, I, I don't understand. I don't understand that. Neither I get I. such a kick when I'm reading subtitles. I'm like, hey, I can speak French. You know, I, it's like great. Like it's like I will, a superpower. I'll, I'll turn on subtitles and things that are in English at this point because I'm 45 years old. The hearing ain't what it used to be. And my kids are in bed at, you know, nine o'clock at night. So turning up, if I'm watching something that's dialogue heavy and I'm at home, I, subtitles yeah. can help. I don't mind reading along. I'm totally fine with yeah. that. Well, even with a Miyazaki film where the mouths do line up and it's a mm-hmm. cartoon, it's like, no, 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 you you must watch Miyazaki in Japanese. I, w- I want to hear the performance a, that he wanted. Exactly. And, like, like if, if, if you're cutting off, like, the actual spoken performance of an actor, you're cutting off, like, half of the emotional intent of the film. Yep. Like, um, yeah, I mean, it's like going back to pan and scan. It's like you can't have it in four by three. You can't watch Apocalypse Now in four by three for fuck's Not sake. Now. Like it's a Vittorio Storaro film. Like what are you doing? Um, yeah, it's just I, I, I'm never. I'm always just amazed at the cretinous nature of most of the audience. But yeah, you know, what do you do? We're film nerds. We're different. That's that's true. Yeah, they have other people, I guess, average people. And then maybe I was wrong. Everything I was saying about the audience being more right, I take it all back. The audience was wrong. They're, 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 they're mostly, wrong. they're mostly pretty, most people in the world are pretty stupid, but you, you wouldn't <laughs> want to say that publicly um, in, in, in an interview context. But yeah, I remember when I was like a film nerd back when I was like 16 years old trying to explain pan and scan to my mates. Yeah, and they're going. I don't like it because you're missing out on stuff. You're missing out on like, and I'm like, no, 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 no. no you're no. missing out no. the other way. <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> like, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you are missing out on if you don't do it. And they look at me and going, "Oh, nah, like, nah, mate, like it, that's you know." And I'm like, "Fucking idiot!" And this is like, these are my good dear friends. You know, it's like when you try and explain um, motion. Um, uh, what is it, motion interpolation, and you're trying to go, you, you, your TV is set. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Motion, yes, um, yes. But the, do you mind if I spend five minutes going to cinema function? Oh, my like, God, you do that also. I, I yeah, fix I, people's I TVs to. all the time. I, I turn to, it yeah. off. I can't watch it. Yeah. The but motion, the thing I hate the is when I go, I, I turn it on, and then I turn it off, and I go, see? And they go, nah. <laughs> Why do I spend, you know, 50 hours with my grader, like, when you know it's just spewing into the eyes of morons like you and these are my family i'm talking about <laughs> like idiots anyway you know. oh, i'm with you 100 i've, I've yeah. never talked about that publicly but i absolutely do that all the time go in and they have that motion smoothing and i always turn that off for people and it goes unrewarded nobody notices but yeah they just they're, they're like well you just wasted five minutes of my life like we could have been watching the entire intro of you know whatever it is you know but it's like we're not going to watch prisoners by denis villeneuve like like it was shot on video we're not doing that you know I'll leave. Kind of last note on that idea it's very strange now that because of the prevalence of widescreen televisions in our lifetimes, 
four by three has become more cinematic than one to one, one point eight five. It's almost like if now four by three is a cinematic format that you see. Cause it's so funny. I teach film classes sometimes and I see my, you know, film students doing four by three. And I'm like, why are you doing that? And they're like, oh, I want it to look like an A24, you know? And I'm like, no, no, conceptually, why? Like, I have yeah. a reason. 16 by 9 is the default. Like, that's eye-pleasing. Yep. 4 by 3 or widescreen, you should have a fucking conceptual reason for it. Don't just do it because you liked the <laughs> witch like or whatever story. it is, whatever ghost story or whatever bullshit you've been watching. Like, I guarantee, you know, Robert Eggers, when he's deciding on how he's going to shoot the format of The Lighthouse, was going for a claustrophobic look. He wants, yeah, and, you know, Wes Anderson has a reason. He's jumping between widescreen 16 and 4 yep. by 3 for a reason. Let's talk about that. Let's look at this scene and why is he jumping between the two? Like, what are the differences emotionally between the... Have a fucking reason. Don't just do it. Like, having said that, I, you know, I mean, I shot Wormwood 2 in widescreen because I wanted to... <laughs> because I wanted it to look like Apocalypse Now. So what the fuck am I talking about? I'm, I'm, I'm a total, you know, hypocrite. Because, I mean, it's no different than you listen to John Carpenter commentary and he said, well, you know, two, three, five just looked like movies to me. That's what movies looked like to him. So that's, that's all it was. hundred percent. Who was it? Who was the famous filmmaker who said widescreen's only good for shooting snakes? I thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's like if you, might have been it sounds John like Ford. something Peck and Paul would say. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. Paul. Peck and Paul, John Ford, one of those are hard old bastards. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's a funny thing, especially the 4x3, because I love that format. The square format for, photographically is gorgeous. Like all, all the old films, you know, all the old silent films, all the old Howard Hawks films, they were all shot on 4x3, yep. and there's something to it. But, you know, you, you really should have a reason. Um, and, you know, not being facetious, the reason I wanted, you know, um, When Would Apocalypse shot on widescreen was because I did want it to have a cinematic look. Um, and one of the things that I was going for was, you know, a sort of war-torn apocalypse now kind of epic feeling to it. You know, I wanted I wanted the landscapes to feel epic. Um, and so that's why I did it. Um, but if you look at, you know, what was that great film that we shot in 4x3 that absolutely owned it? Um, Saul, did you see that about the, uh, um, oh, it was such a depressing. Um, what was it called? I think it's called Saul. Um, it's it was set in a concentration camp in oh World no, II, no. Um, and it's about this hellish journey of this guy um in a concentration camp who thinks he's found his son half dead you know in a gas chamber and he's trying to hide the body and keep him alive and stuff it's brutal but um um, but it's shot in four by three because that world is so claustrophobic and you know, like you have to just look forward. You know, you can't look at any of these. Not like it was so correctly formatted. Um, you know, so when you when you get it right, it's it's one hundred percent right. But I, I hate when I'm looking at an indie film shot in four by three, and I just know that they just want it to look like an A twenty four release. It's just like, come on, guys. Like, I mean, you if you're you're doing something where you're shooting and you want it to, it's you're doing trench warfare. I mean, that could have scope, but I could see a reason for that being in four by three because you want the height of it and the depth. I, I could get certain times, um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. I think of a couple of examples I've seen in the last few years that doesn't feel like it was adding anything to the film other than well, a, an aesthetic. A big, a big creative move like that um, 
is like an incorrect needle drop. You know, if it's handled mm -hmm. correctly and it's narratively true, it's going to lift things to the sky. But if you can smell that it's a cheap grab for either entertainment value or artistic cred, the audience smells that very quickly and they're just sitting there going, okay, why, why can I not see here? Like, it makes no sense. You know, like this is just a standard family drama. Just shoot it in 16.9 and don't be pretentious, you know. I'm with you 100%, man. But uh, best of luck on the film. I love this. Again, want more. And yeah, there's something I think that people are going to connect with. I'm recommending it to everybody. I want people to check this out because I think that films like this need to be championed because uh, we need more stuff like this. Thanks, Chris. And thanks being interested because without the interest of people like you, then even people in my own country don't even know it exists. So you get the word out there so people actually watch it, you know? Damn shame, man. Oh, well, what do you do? Well, thank you again. Thank you for uh, jumping on. Sorry, I was uh, running late on that. So I really Oh, it didn't that. bother me at all, man. I've got nothing but boring shit to do today. So this is a lovely distraction. Well, I'm glad I could provide that. Thank you, man. Thanks, Chris. Okay, take it easy. Take care, man. See you soon. Bye-bye. Uh -huh,